Hello, I'm Adriana Jacobs, and welcome back to the second episode of Staying Alive, a podcast series on contemporary poetry in crisis. This episode features the work of British poet, editor, and translator Sasha Dugdale. I first became acquainted with Sasha during her tenure as editor of Modern Poetry and Translation. In that time, Sasha oversaw the production of a digital archive of the journal, as well as an anthology titled Cataclysms of Crisis, which she co-edited with Peter and Helen Constantine. Her own translations from the Russian include the works of the poets Elena Schwartz, Marina Stepanova, and Marina Tsvetaeva. And like other poets who translate, echoes of these poets find their way into her own poems. Last September, I traveled to Brighton, a coastal city in southeast England, to talk to Sasha about the ghosts that inhabit her third collection, The Red House, published in 2011 by Carcanet Press. In this episode, we talk about the experiences that shape this collection, specifically Sasha's longtime engagement through translation with Russian language poetry, and her reflections on the breakdown of the Soviet Union. We address the possibility of translation to offer an afterlife to past voices and texts, as well as Sasha's current interest in deformations of the ballad form as a continuation of her work in poetry and translation. My first question concerns your collection, The Red House, which was published in 2011, and it's the third of the four books you've published to date with Carcanet Press. Um, And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how this particular collection came together. The collection came together out of a group of lyric poems, so it wasn't a collection that had a particular concept to it, but it did take place over a certain period in my life, and it was a period when I was doing quite a lot of translation from Russian of plays and of of poetry, and most particularly of Yelena Schwartz. How intentional was the idea of the Red House as you went about organizing the collection, composing it? The um, original idea of the Red House came from a painting by Peter Doig um, at an exhibition in the Tate of his work. And he has a series of pictures called the Red House, but I saw one of the pictures. And it was, it was a very sort of abstract red house. And it reminded me a little bit of um, the Malevich picture with another red house in it. And they seemed to symbolize something that was at once quite empty, um, but also a home, a hearth. They pulled in different directions. So the sequence, the Red House, which is a sort of crown of sonnets, takes place in a very abstract place, but at the same time, it is a building that I knew very well, which is the first place I lived when I was in Moscow, which was an absolutely enormous house. It was called uh, the House of the Professors because it was very close to Moscow State University. And it was actually where professors and their families, the academic staff were housed. And it was a Stalinist building with very, um, flats had very high ceilings. There were very beautiful flats, parquet floors and stuccoed ceilings. And so some of the stories um, related to things that happened in that house with its peculiar Stalinist staircases. And some of the things were stories that had been told to me about other places in the Soviet Union. So although I present it as abstract, the actual anecdotes that make up the poem are um, Soviet ones for the most part. And um, I suspect they also, it it strikes me that those poems also relate to a period in my life when I was living there and I was, um, I suppose, an older teenager. And it was one of my first trips away from my own home. And I was still um, defining myself and making myself at the same time. 
the Red House has this incredible vitality to it. Um, it's a place where it seems like the ghosts of the past, but also the ghosts of the present um, are very much alive. But in other contexts, it, it feels like a very derelict and abandoned, um, bereft place. Um, and I was wondering to how conscious you were of this play between vitality and decomposition um, and how central this was to the way the collection developed. It's interesting that you see that in the collection as a whole. And I certainly, um, I think that in the, the title poem, um, The Red House, that is something that occupied me. I was interested in the point when I went to Russia, which was when the Soviet Union collapsed and the 90s. Um, so between the, in that moment, trying to record what was going on around me, and it was a point of, of decomposition and collapse of the old and intense, crazy vitality as the new came into being and the sort of crossover between the two, which was painful and awful, um, but also incredibly absorbing and uplifting. And it was the period also when I came of age, and so it became quite important for me. Um, and I, I'm glad if that feels, if that's cast its shadow over the collection as a whole, because it's certainly something that I found in that, um, in, I found in that space. In the poem Out of Town, you have these wonderful lines. The ghosts are in each blade of grass, each blade of grass a heaven and a hell. Um, and you talk in this poem about the habitat of ghosts as being these interstitial spaces where country becomes city and city becomes country. And the detritus that gathers there, um, ghosts feel most at home. I wrote that poem at a point when I was doing quite a lot of research about William Blake. In fact, I was preparing to write Joy. So quite a few of the images are quite Blakeian, and that is more apparent to me at a distance, in fact. But um, definitely, I had a sense of this intensity of life, and um, it being perhaps spiritual, um, and, it ha and, and it having been pushed out to the margins by something that was harder and more present, and perhaps less forgiving in some way, which occupied the central spaces. I should say right now that I don't believe in ghosts in the sense that I don't, you know, um, imagine hauntings to have really happened. But um, it struck me that ghosts represent something which is perhaps historical, which is perhaps spiritual, which is um, outside the, the kind of hard granite finished world that we inhabit. So I'm interested in hearing what purpose the figure of ghosts serves uh, for a poet who doesn't necessarily have to believe in them. I hesitate to talk too much about my own upbringing, but I was brought up a Catholic, and I think that there is something about Catholic religion which um, allows more ghostly presences than perhaps um, other forms of belief. And certainly, there was no sense that death was a stopping point when I was growing up. Um, there was a continuity. And of course, we went to church, so we sort of saw the act of intercession. I don't know whether that's made an awful lot of difference to me now. I'm not religious now, but um, but perhaps it does, because perhaps it's something about when you're how you're formed as a child, whether you see life as a sort of concrete 
end stopped thing or whether you see it as something that has a more subtle ending but the idea of being haunted by people from the past seems more than real to me because there's a intense community there's an intense continuity between past and present and um, however much we try and deny it we are we grow out of the past and past present and future and inextricably linked I think that I'm very aware of the fact that a life does not stop and I love the idea of the word you know the quick as opposed to the dead because life is very quick and full of energy and frenzy but I'm not sure it stops with death so um, philosophically or psychologically or historically I'm not sure it stops with death. I was thinking also about the works you've translated and the poets you've translated. In The Red House, I pick up a lot of Elena Schwartz. And in an essay that you wrote about Schwartz um, in the year after her death, um, you wrote that Schwartz appears to seek, um, and I quote, to outwit death and even to revenge herself on death itself by living and writing poetry. And this idea of a poet using poetry as a way to defy death or to live on beyond death is so compelling. Um, and as a poet, I, I'm so I'm curious uh, if there's a relation between what you're saying uh, about death not being the end and the poem itself as a space for that continuation of a life. I think that's right because um, I was, that to, to give some context, I never met Yelena Schwarz. We were uh, correspondents. We nearly met a couple of times but didn't quite meet. But we were very close correspondents um, and I was deeply shocked by her death. I hadn't really seen it coming and I had just started translating her. And there's something about translation which is particularly about bringing the dead to life because you're always reproducing a voice and if it's a voice the voice of a poet who has died then you're creating it new and fresh and in a way that's living you're not bringing into your translation the idea that that person has died or that the voice is defunct or it's fallen silent you're almost doing the opposite so there's a sort of anti-death um, in in translating the dead but it Altogether in, in poetry, it's a defiance of silence. One feels that the Red House is a place where mothers raise babies and people fall in love and uh, families are brought together, but it's also a place where that carries the memory of, of violence. And some of the violence happens in the house, but there's also the crises of kind of the historical crises that are um, surrounding the Red House. And I, I was hoping you could speak a bit about the relation between the inside and outside of the Red House with respect to crisis. Sometimes we talk about crisis now um, in the UK and, and the US and in Russia, and it's only crisis for some of us. For the rest of us, it's, it's a time of, I don't know, stability and prosperity for example or so that the idea of crisis depends very much on your on your subjective viewpoint and and that was interesting to me too that 
when we look back at points that we could feel as if we could objectively call them crisis points, the possibility that quite a few people at that time never noticed they were crisis points, that they lived through them, and never once used the word crisis because it wasn't part of their lives or their understanding of the world. or And that, that in itself struck me as really important somehow. I'd like to write in a way that sort of slightly reflected that, the fact that I feel that, that the world is in crisis at the moment. But it's also really fascinating to me that other people wouldn't necessarily agree with me and wouldn't feel that way. And so there's something about the way that societies work and the way that history works and that, that, that I find deeply, deeply, um, well, the opposite of illuminating. I mean, it's just incredibly elusive, all of this. And in some ways, it seemed to me that the only way you could particularly write about um, the past was to go through a, a voice, a single voice, and offer something that felt as if it had some sort of integrity to it. And then if you you felt it was a crisis, you weren't speaking for the the larger public you could speak for that that particular voice going back to your comments on the period in which you were writing the red house and bringing it together and you were talking about your experience of living in russia and the late 90s and experiencing the breakdown of the soviet union and it's so interesting because reading the red house it's not as though those episodes are are made explicit and so it's interesting to me to think how poets take these concrete, very specific experiences that they're having, um, sometimes in a context that we could call a, a moment of crisis. If we think of crisis as going back to its sort of deeper etymology, as a break, as a moment when something comes apart, or a, a, a decisive moment, and how they recast that into poems that sometimes need to be less explicit if they're going to have a kind of movement mm. historically or a movement in language and how a poet sort of balances the desire to sort of respond to something without also rooting it so completely in a particular time and place that then later readers can't do anything more with it. Yeah, and I think sometimes we only know that it's been a period of crisis because of the poetry. And that struck me about the Soviet Union. I mean, that's simply the thing I know best. But when I, I look back, the whole attempt to, um, at the moment, is to, to, to rewrite history so that Stalinism looks better and more glorious. And it's very subtle and utterly cynical. And the only way that you can counter that is by reading Mandelstam, to my mind, because Mandelstam is the poet, the break. he tells us the break, and um, even as he's attempting to mend it. So sometimes there's something about poetry occasionally which indicates crisis that, that nothing else really picks up on. None of the other measuring instruments pick up on with the same care, the same precision, I suppose. Like a sort of Richter scale for society, but a very finely calibrated one. Because the 90s were a, a really difficult period for Russia, but they weren't without really good things and hope but now the, the regime in Russia at the moment paints the 90s as the disaster that Russia had to escape from by voting for Putin so the idea of crisis there is used to shore up a, an incredibly right-wing regime and I think that's pretty common I'm sure there are plenty of other regimes which have found a, a point of crisis to justify their existence 
On that note, I'd like us to turn to one of the poems in the collection and ask you if you don't mind to, to read it for us, an untitled poem, which appears roughly a third of the way through the Red House. Perhaps Ahmadova was right when she wrote, who knows what shit, what tip, what pile of waste brings forth the tender verse. Like hogweed, like the fat hen under the fence, like the unbearable present tense, who knows what ill, what strife, what crude shack of a life, and how it twists sweetly about the broken sill. Pressingness, another word for honeysuckle. But housewives, has poetry ever deepened in the pale? Was it ever found in the sink, under the table? Did it rise in the oven, quietly able to outhowl the hoover? Does it press more than the children's supper, the sudden sleepless wail? Did it ever? It lives. It takes seed, like the most unforgiving weed. Grows wilder as the child grows older and spits on dreams. Did I say how it thrives in the ashen family nest? Or how I am's a measured best where it hurts? with the heel of an iron on the reluctant breast of a shirt. And I think you've brought also a bit of the Ahmatova poem that you had in mind. If you could just tell us the title of the poem and a little something about the part that you're going to read in, in Russian. This poem um, is called which sort of effectively means I don't need all these great odes. And... Um, she writes in this poem, if only you knew what sort of rubbish poetry grows from, uh, it's, un it's shameless. It's like the yellow dandelion by the gate. It's like the fat hen. Um, it's like the angry shout, the smell of fresh tar. Um, and it's the, um, the secret mold on the wall. And, um, but the, the, the poem sounds soft, um, and kind of following its own fancy, really, and it give, gives joy to everyone and to me. That's a very rough, literal translation. But it's such a precise poem about poetry, the way that it derives its, its, its essence from the, 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 the awful things and the banal things, as well as the glorious things, and perhaps almost predominantly the awful and banal things, because those are what we're surrounded by. This is how this bit sounds in Russian. Когда бы вы знали, из какого ссора растут стихи, не видая стыда, как желтый одуванчик у забора, как лопухи или беда, сердистый окрик, дегте запах свежий, таинственная плесень на стене, и стих уже звучит задорен, нежен, на радость всем и мне. This poem effectively is the way I read it, sort of addresses the question of what what poetry can do, or maybe to put it another way, is like, what can poetry do? I think Akhmatova is writing in what we would call a time of crisis, and her poem seems to very much acknowledge that, while at the same time, it, you can even pick it, pick it up in the Russian, that it sounds very beautiful, 
it has these aesthetic qualities while at the same time making this plant claim that poetry comes from the ground and the dirt and the ugly side of, of life. So could you speak a little bit about, about that and how your own poem is sort of in dialogue with hers around those questions? I was really struck by Akhmatova's, in Akhmatova's poetry, um, by the way that she makes very beautiful poems from the detritus of her life. And she's fantastic at detail. She has these wonderful, tiny, tiny details that become absolutely luminous in the context of the poem. Visual um, images, um, lilac blossoms or, or a pattern on a belt, for example, which are just just wonderful. They really stand out. I think I probably wrote the poem when my children were quite small and I was working out how to find time to write poetry around small children and around being in the house and um, whether it would whether it would be able to uh, to cope with that lack of time and lack of space um, and it it did but I think in the poem and probably in life it becomes bitterer as a result of that pressure um, the word pressingness in that poem is an incredibly literal translation of the Russian word zhumalist which means honeysuckle and it's not a normal translation. There's something about the conditions which shape the poem. And in that case, I think what I felt was expected of me was something that was rejoicing. And, you know, here I am, I've got children, I've got these stresses in my life, but yes, I can still write an old ode to the sunset. But actually, that the life shapes the poem and you can no longer do that. You write something that's, that, that comes out of that and that shapes it. Um, it's not that, that you're given the space and you, you can then immediately start writing great odes or um, kind of Homeric epithets or what, where you come from shapes the poem. Throughout your four books, it, it's very interesting to sort of take note of when you use rhyme or meter, when you use particular forms, when a poem is a ballad or a sonnet. And sometimes I get the sense that the decision to employ rhyme and meter or a particular form sometimes comes with a touch of irony, almost as though the reader is meant to have this sort of very pleasant aesthetic experience, but at the same time, the poem is coming out of the, the shit, as Ahmatova says. Could you say a little bit about the relation between form and meter and poems that are coming or addressing places that are not entirely joyful, to put it one way. It is true that I use rhyme ironically, not entirely ironically, because it's, it is, as you said, a pleasure to have something that has some qualities of sound, but the uh, the feeling I had was that, that they jarred terribly with contemporary realities and yet we'd been handed them and one thing that I could do was show how they jarred and I suppose that seemed quite a useful thing to do. So at the moment I'm working on a series of deformed ballads um, and that's partly because ballads seem to me to be, first of all, well, I talked to someone else about this and um, he said inscrutable, but I actually find they're quite repellent ballads, the ballad form. It's utterly closed. It's utterly um, 
historicizing. And so it's a really interesting form to work with um, and to subvert. And, um, and yet it has that song-like quality. And in fact, that quite by coincidence happened as I started translating a poet called Bonnie Stepanova, a Russian poet, and she's used um, a lot of war songs from the Second World War, and she's sort of bent and deformed them. And so I, I use the term deformed ballads about Maria's ballads, and then realised that I actually wanted to write deformed ballads, and that was what I really wanted to, to do, because there's something about, yeah, the tension between the saccharine form and the and the and the content which which can be or which for me is just exceptionally telling and I also quite like the fact that they don't have to be absolutely right or precise you can just let them take on their own rather hideous life and then you know if they then want to mutilate themselves then that's kind of fine too so my understanding is that you have brought a deformed ballad um an unpublished ballad, so this would be the first time that you're reading it, which is very exciting. Um, and before you read it, can you just say a few words about it? The um, poem is called Narsica, and it's about the character in the Odyssey, the daughter of Asinus, um, and Odysseus appears to her on a beach. I started reading it because I'm doing some work on the British artist, sculptor, letter writer, um, letter cutter, Eric Gill. And he has a very famous frieze um, called Nausicaa in the Midland Hotel up in Lancashire. And it shows Nausicaa stretching out her hand to Odysseus. And we know about Gill that he serially abused his daughters um, and so something of that comes into the poem um, and I think that's about all I can say. I'll, I'll just read it. Nathika. My bestie came to me in a dream and said, your room is a slum, used sanitary towels curling on the floor. Your clothes are fetid. Girl, pull your finger out, it's fucking foul. So I asked my father, Dad, can I take the car? I've bagged up some gear for charity. I'll wash the rest. And he knew right there what it was for. He knew I wanted to look my sexy best. Dad laughed and chucked me the keys. Take my car, sweetie. Ask your friends. Head down the beach, pop it. Have yourself some fun. Go for a spa with your hens. Dressed up, no one would guess our age. But on the beach, we did all stupid stuff. Threw the ball around, played at chase took all our clothes off. Sometimes we can still get silly like that, I mean, without drinking and on our own, unafraid somehow. Did I say that? Just girls, no pressure, just us alone. But then this man rises out of the sand, naked as fuck, but shielding his prick, filthy with gull shit, smelling so bad I literally tasted sick. We're screaming, running from his reach, because who knows what kind of fuck wanks off watching girls on the beach. I was terrified. I thought I'd run out of luck. I want to run like my fearful band, streaming hair, screaming, naked as night, twisting and turning over the sand like swallows in tangled flight. But something drags me back by force, 
curiosity, or pity for him, or even shame, or the gods who put their fingers up your ass, leave their claw marks in your brain. Or maybe just, he's a man, I know my place. Or maybe just I want to be chosen. Or maybe I'm a freak, I'll be erased. My bare arm, I'm frozen. First amongst fans or slut without shame, I stretch out my bare arm. I see my hand far, far away, like it belongs to someone older. A little clutch of prehistoric fingers and something fluttered on my shoulder, feathery grey, full of hunger. Did I say I was never a victim? Although I was riven like a sea-rotted hull, although he took my life and flicked it like a stone to the end of the world. I helped him with good grace, and inside I knew every complication. I learnt to lie, and it was barefaced. On my lies they built a civilization. Rewind, tell my father to close the gates and hurry, fly like birds from the wreck on the sand. But most of all, don't listen to his story. Close your ears, draw back your hand. I'm really struck by your use of the two translations, the Fagels and the Wilson, um, because I think implicit in that decision to use both is also something about gender and power. And, um, and that comes through in this really marvelous poem. Um, and it reminds me of something that Catherine Maris said in Time Out um, in a review of your book, which she described as an infusion of British sensibility with the passion and abandon of Russian poets. Um, could you say a little bit, uh, especially in light of this particular deformed ballad, how translation has shaped your own poetic practice, um, not just in the Red House, but also in these new deformations that you're putting together? I think that one of the most important things is that it allows you to feel um, as if your own views are conditional, as if they are particularly based on your context, not just your views, but your artistic practice and your world, your artistic world, and that it is possible to step outside that and to see a different world and a different set of contingents, I suppose. And that gives you a sort of flexibility, um, or at least an unsureness, perhaps. And I think that very much about Russia and Russian translation, because Russia is so very different from um, the English-speaking world. And I'm always really glad that I decided to learn Russian and translate from Russian because it represents such a shift, not just a cultural shift, but a shift in, um, in, in a sort of historical understanding and a way of being in the world, which is incredibly useful to me. It makes my own position seem much more conditional. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. Thank you so much, Adriana. It's wonderful. This episode features an untitled poem from Sasha Dugdale's The Red House, published in 2011 by Karkinid Press. Next time, we travel to Tel Aviv to talk to Israeli poet Shimon Adaf. Staying Alive is an original podcast series created and presented by me, Adriana Jacobs, with editing by Daniel Bieber and Danny Cox, and music by The Zombie Dandies. Support for this podcast comes from the John Fell Fund. For more information about this episode, including materials that didn't make it into the final cut, visit the podcast website, stayingalive.show. Mm-hmm.